The Apostle Paul was a great champion of grace. He who recognized himself to be the chief of sinners was a most grateful recipient of God's grace. And as the apostle to the Gentiles, he heralded God's grace throughout the Mediterranean world. We read Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 5, verse 15, uh, to the, the saints in Rome, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul's message could be termed the gospel of the grace of God. As we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was a champion of grace. Yet false teachers arose who perverted the grace of God, either teaching a works-based gospel and wrongly teaching that grace uh, is licensed for sin, and so we don't need grace, or proclaiming, uh, I'm sorry, promoting worldliness and giving license to be worldly on the basis of grace. Jude 4 warns, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast to the false teachers, the Apostle Paul taught the true grace of God. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul taught, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul there said that the grace of God trains us to live self-controlled lives waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God trains us to live self-controlled lives as we await a Christ's appearing. And the Apostle Paul's ministry was a testimony to this truth, that the grace of God trains us to live self-controlled lives awaiting the coming of our Lord and Master. And we see this in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians. And the Apostle Paul commands us here to follow his example of living a self-controlled, self-disciplined life of sacrificial service to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the grace of God trains us to do. To follow the example of our loving Lord, who according to Philippians 2 verses 7 through 8, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
The grace of Jesus Christ teaches us to follow that example. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Uh, please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. <clears throat> Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We have been studying through this great epistle, and we have seen that in chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul has been saying much about foregoing personal rights and freedoms in service to Christ. He rebuked the Corinthian believers for not doing so, and he has given himself as a positive example of doing so. And now in our text, the Apostle Paul commands the Corinthian believers and us as believers to do as Paul did. We find in our text three commands for how you are to now serve your Lord and Master Jesus Christ so that on the final day, He would be pleased. The first command is run so as to obtain the prize. Run so as to obtain the prize. The prize. Look with me closely at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. The Corinthian believers knew this. But change was needed in their mindset and conduct. A symptom of their problem is the whole way that they had been approaching the issue of food offered to idols. Remember that they were eating food that had been sacrificed to idols in the temples of idols. And Paul says, you're showing no consideration for your weak brothers who very easily through your example could be emboldened to do the very same thing People who have been saved out of a life of idolatry. Who, for them, if they were to be brought into that, it would be making them to stumble. It would be destroying them. It, it could potentially bring them back into a life of idolatry. You say that this is your right to eat this meat in this temple. But you're not acting in love. You need to sacrifice your supposed rights. For the sake of your weak, weaker brother. He rebuked them for not foregoing their rights for the sake of others. Not foregoing their rights in service to Christ. That, that was a symptom of their problem. That issue with the food sacrificed to idols. A symptom of a deeper issue. As always in Paul's letter, he addresses more than the symptoms. He addresses the heart of the issue. Paul asks rhetorically here in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one 
receives the prize. Paul is drawing an analogy. An analogy from something with which the Corinthians were very familiar. The Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games. The Olympic Games were held in Olympia, which was 70 miles from Corinth. The Olympic Games had started in 776 BC and were held once every four years. Similar games called the Isthmian Games started in 581 BC and were hosted by the city of Corinth on the Isthmus that connected northern and southern Greece. The Isthmian Games were held once every two years. Both the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games attracted both athletes and spectators from all over Greece. The Isthmian Games were a major festival for the city of Corinth, a great event on their calendar. The events at the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games included foot races, wrestling, jumping, boxing, javelin, and discus. When the Olympic Games started, the only event was called the Stadion. Stadion is the Greek word in verse 24, translated race. Notice that word race here. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Do you not know that in a stadion all the runners run? The stadion was the first event in the Olympic Games. And for several years in the Olympics, that was the only event. But over time, more events were added, including races of longer distance, but the stadion remained the first and the most prestigious event of the Games. Similar to the 100-meter dash in today's track and field competitions. Today, the winner of the 100 meters in the Olympic track and field games is praised as the fastest man in the world. That is the premier event in track and field. If not the premier event in the whole Olympic games today. This event, the stadion, was a foot race that measured one stadion in length. 600 Greek feet approximately 192 meters. Which would make this race just short of today's 200 meter race. The 200 meter race is halfway around a modern day track. Today the world record for 200 meters is 19.19 seconds. And so the winners of the stadion, this race that Paul has in mind, the winners of the stadion in Paul's days would have been running it in approximately 20 seconds. It was a sprint. The track on which the ancient Greeks competed was longer and narrower than modern day tracks. And the stadion was one length of the track. For the stadion event, somewhere between 11 and 22 lanes were set up. And there were preliminary heats, and then there was the final, the championship. Now, around the track was constructed a stadium. Now, this English word stadium is derived from the Greek word stadion that I've been using. Around the track was constructed a stadium. And if I understand correctly from my research, the stadiums of Paul's day seated anywhere between 30,000 and 45,000 spectators. 
If you've watched the movie Ben-Hur, think about the stadium in which the chariot race occurs. All right, Th- These stadiums would have been similar. Just remove that wall that's in the middle of that stadium in Ben-Hur. And you have something like what Paul has in mind here. The winner of the stadia, in addition to receiving the prize awarded at the games, received honors and gifts from their home city, whom they represented. They received fame and glory. They received tremendous acclaim. Now, this is the metaphor the Apostle Paul uses in verse 24. When he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. The games did not award gold, silver, and bronze medals for first, second, and third place. There was only one prize, and it was for the winner of the event. And Paul says, So run that you may obtain it. This verse likens serving Christ to running the stadion race. We have a command here. We have an imperative here. So run that you may obtain it. This is not a suggestion. Uh, This is not teaching us some fact. No, this is a command. This is an imperative to the Christian. So run that you may obtain it. In, In the way that a runner runs to obtain the prize, so we are to serve Christ. We're to serve Christ in the same manner. Now, for Paul, this included preaching the word of Christ. If you look back, uh, or if you look down at verse 27, in 27 he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Running the race included Paul's apostolic ministry to which Christ appointed him. Now, I want you to look at what Paul has said in this chapter about his apostolic ministry. Because he's likening carrying out his apostolic ministry uh, to running this race, running for the prize. So look back at verse 12, verse 12b. The second half of verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, that was the right to be financially supported by the Corinthians, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then go down to verse 15. Verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, 
though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's been speaking about his apostolic ministry. Paul's race was his apostolic ministry. And yet he commands all believers in verse 24, so run that you may obtain the prize. That you and I have not been appointed by Christ to an apostolic ministry. He has appointed all of us as Christians to serve Him, to serve Him, our Lord and Savior. Using the gifts that He has given to us, we're going to see in chapter 12 that Christ has given spiritual gifts to all believers. Using the gifts He has given us, playing a part in the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the edification of the church. Every Christian has been appointed by Christ to serve Christ. To play a part in the Great Commission, to use the gifts that have been given by Christ through His Spirit to edify the church. Your race is not identical to my race. Nor is your race identical to the race of the brother or the sister sitting next to you. We are not competing against each other in one race. Christ has given each of us a race to run. Each of us is to run that race as to win. To run that that race as to obtain the prize. We're not competing against each other. That's not the metaphor here. Now, Paul here is not teaching something entirely new. But he's using a new metaphor to focus on a different aspect of serving Christ. And I want to show you some of what Paul taught earlier about serving Christ. Go back to chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. In verse 9, Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers. He's thinking of himself, Apollos, Cephas, another name for Peter, uh, the different leaders uh, that have been involved uh, in this church in Corinth at different times. For we are God's fellow workers. Not a fellow worker with God, but we are God's workers and we are fellow workers. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through, as through fire. So he's talking about ministers of the gospel, serving Christ, 
as, as they build up the church. And he says, be careful how you build. Be careful what materials you use in building up the church. Because the servants of Christ will have to give an account to Christ. Well, I'll have to give an account to Christ. And what we have done in service to Christ will be evaluated by Christ. And either the servants of Christ will be rewarded by Christ, or, Paul says in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then Paul continues in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, to say, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the, of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So again, Paul speaks of himself and, and others as servants of Christ. Stewards of the mysteries of God. And a steward is a certain kind of, of a servant. So it is required of a, of a servant or a steward to be found faithful. It's not a matter of how much fruit is there from one's ministry but is one faithful to their Lord and Master Jesus Christ in their service to Him? It's required of a steward to be found trustworthy, to be faithful. And again, there's going to be coming a time where the servants of Christ will have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will evaluate the service that has been done for His sake. Now, do these things apply to every Christian? Paul was speaking of himself as a minister of the gospel and an, and an apostle. Do these things that Paul has said in these passages, do these things apply to every Christian? Yes, they do apply in a way to every Christian. Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4, reading through verse 7. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says to these believers, you have been enriched in Christ. Enriched in all speech and all knowledge. He has given you gifts to be used for the building up of the body of, of Christ. He says in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Every Christian, as Paul will elaborate upon in chapter 12, has received a spiritual gift from Christ to be used in service of Christ. Go forward to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 19. Chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul asks, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Every Christian 
has been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And therefore, our body is not our own. We belong to Christ in body and soul. And so we are to glorify God in our body. We are servants of Christ. We are to live our lives in service to Him. We're not our own. And then go forward to chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 7, verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. And really, every Christian is a slave of Christ because of that redemption. Because Christ purchased us for himself at Calvary, we belong to him. He freed us out of slavery to sin that now we might serve him as our Lord and Master. So every Christian is a slave of Christ, not just the Apostle Paul, not just ministers of the gospel, but every Christian is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, which really is the highest privilege that we could have. To be called to be a slave or a servant of the one who gave his life for us at Calvary. The one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who is, is, is worthy of the highest worship, the highest praise. We have been called into his service. Coming back to our text. It is because the Christian is a slave of Christ entrusted with gifts to be used in ministry, that you and I are commanded in our text, in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. What does this mean? In what way are you as a servant of Christ to be like a runner who runs to obtain the prize? Well, Paul tells us in the following verses. In verse 25, we are taught to exercise self-control to receive an imperishable crown. Exercise self-control to receive an imperishable crown. Though verse 25, which we're about to read, is not worded as a command, it does explain the command in the previous verse And so we can understand verse 25 to be commanding us as believers to do what the verse talks about, to exercise self-control to receive an imperishable crown. Look at verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Notice that Paul talks about every athlete. Or the New American Standard translates it, everyone who competes in the games. That's a a freer translation to try to give you the sense that Paul has in mind. Every athlete, or everyone who competes in the games. Now, here when Paul talks about every athlete, he's referring not just to the runners, but also to the athletes in all the other events that were contested in the Olympic and the Isthmian Games. Paul says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That term, exercise self-control, means to keep one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control. 
Paul has in mind the self-control that was the way of life for a true athlete. An athlete who was entered in the Olympic Games was required to do 10 months of strict training and was subject to disqualification if he failed to do so. The, the, an ancient Greek writer reported that athletes and their trainers participating in the Olympic Games swore an oath that in nothing they will sin against the Olympic Games. The writer says the athletes take this further oath also that for 10 successive months they have strictly followed the regulations for training. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote, quote, Athletes are set apart for more rigid training to apply themselves to the building up of their physical strength. They are kept from lavish living, from more tempting dishes, from more pleasurable drinks. They are urged on, they are subjected to tortuous toils, they are worn out. The more strenuously they have exerted themselves, the greater is their hope of victory." Unquote. The Greek philosopher Epictetus, who was born around the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, said those who say, I wish to win an Olympic victory, must consider the demanding task before them. Quote, you have to submit to, the dis to discipline, follow a strict diet, give up sweet cakes, train under compulsion at a fixed hour, in heat or in cold, you must not drink cold water nor wine just whenever you feel like it." Unquote. Now Paul speaks here in verse 25 of how an athlete exercised self-control in every area of life that was thought to have an effect on the outcome of the competition. A self-control that included abstinence from rights and freedoms and pleasures that would keep him from obtaining the prize at the end of his training. A self-control that included self-denial, sacrifice, and endurance. Athletes exercise self-control in all things, Paul says, to receive a perishable wreath. To receive a perishable wreath. Paul's referring to the victor's crown that was made of vegetation, that was awarded uh, to the winner of each of the events in the Olympic and Isthmian Games. At the Isthmian Games, these wreaths for the victors were sometimes made of pine branches. Other times they were made of the leafy parts of celery plants. Now, while these crowns were highly sought after, they perished quickly. Like a Christmas tree. How long can you keep a Christmas tree in your living room that has been cut off and just brought from outside into your home. That's not growing there in your home. Right, after two months, it's going to look very brown. And you're going to want to get it out of your house. It perishes quickly. Think about a celery stalk. What does it look like if you take, keep it out of the refrigerator for a week? It perishes quickly. Now, Paul says in verse 25... Like the athletes, we as servants of Christ exercise self-control in all things. But unlike the athlete, we do it to receive an imperishable wreath. Or an, an, an imperishable victor's crown. Now what is this? What is Paul referring to? We do this to receive an imperishable wreath. What is this imperishable wreath? 
I do not believe it is final salvation. I do not believe it is something that every Christian will receive. I think we have to interpret this by a previous passage in this epistle that said something similar. Go back to what we read in chapter 3. Chapter 3, I want us again to look at verses 11 through 15 as we seek to understand what Paul has in mind when he talks about the imperishable wreath. Chapter 3, starting in verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built and the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. When we studied this passage, we saw that Paul was talking about a reward to ministers of the gospel for faithfulness in ministry. Verse 15 makes it clear that it is not an issue of salvation. Because it says, if anyone's work is burned up, so he doesn't pass the test, the work that he did is not seen to have been what the Lord would have had it to have been. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, that is, loss of rewards, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. His soul will be saved. This is not an issue of your eternal destiny. This is not an issue of final salvation. No, it's a matter of rewards for faithfulness. Chapter 3 is talking about a reward that some ministers will receive and others will not. Faithful ministers will receive it. Unfaithful ministers will not receive it. I think we have to understand chapter 9, verse 25 in a similar way. You can come back to chapter 9. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This imperishable wreath that Paul speaks of is an eternal reward that some believers will receive and other believers will not receive. And receiving it will be based on service to Christ and the faithfulness of that service. Likely, Paul is not talking about a literal wreath or a literal crown that one will have in heaven. Paul is using athletic metaphors all throughout this paragraph. What this eternal reward will be, we do not know. But we know that this reward will be desirable. We know that this reward will be fitting. We know it is a reward that the Lord will delight to bestow on those who have been faithful in their service to Christ. Now, what is the point here in verse 25? In your service to Christ, Paul is saying, be like an athlete who is intent to obtain the prize, exercising self-control in all things. In your service to Christ, you will have to abstain from some things that would be a hindrance. You will have to abstain from some rights. 
You will have to abstain from some personal freedoms that would be a hindrance to the work of the ministry. You will have to deny yourself some desires. Not because those desires are sinful, but because you will not be able to obtain the prize if you act on those desires. Because you will not be able to fulfill the ministry that the Lord Jesus has entrusted to you if you follow those desires. You may enjoy going to nice restaurants and purchasing designer clothing. And there is nothing morally wrong with doing so as a Christian. The Christian has freedom in Christ to go to nice restaurants and to purchase designer clothing. But if Christ is calling you to go to seminary to prepare to be a missionary then you may need to deny yourself those desires in order to pay for seminary. And like an athlete who submits to rigorous training, you too will need to submit to rigorous training, theological training that will require self-control. You cannot quit when the training gets difficult. You cannot skip assignments that you do not feel like doing. And then after that, you will need to submit yourself to the rigors of learning a foreign language. You will need to be like an athlete who exercises self-control in all things. If the Lord is calling you to go overseas as a missionary and to prepare for that, to train for that. Now maybe the Lord Jesus is calling you to get training in biblical counseling in order to edify your local church. Or maybe the Lord is calling you to be faithfully involved in one of our evangelistic ministries. Like our brother Vincent Cucurillo who has ministered outside the abortion clinic almost every Saturday for a good number of years now. Maybe the Lord is calling you to befriend one of your neighbors and have them over for dinner once a week indefinitely for the purpose of evangelizing them. Maybe the Lord is calling you and your spouse to become foster parents or to adopt orphans and bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Maybe the Lord has given you your own children to raise on His behalf. Maybe the Lord is calling you to give a substantial amount of money monthly and sacrificially above and beyond what you give to support your local church for the advance of the gospel to unreached people groups. And we could have many more examples. Understand that if the ministry is truly of the Lord, it will require self-control. If the ministry is truly of the Lord, it will require sacrifice. It will require endurance. Endurance in prayer. Maybe endurance in training. Endurance in the work of the ministry. Endurance in sacrifice. Now look again at what Paul says here in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So the question is this. If athletes exercise such self-control and self-denial to receive a wreath of celery that perishes in a week or a wreath of pine boughs that perish in a month or two, can you not exercise the same self-control and self-denial to receive the imperishable wreath that the Lord Jesus Christ promises to His faithful servants to win a victory that is of eternal weight. We must. We absolutely must exercise this kind of self-control. 
This kind of self-denial. This kind of endurance in the ministry to which the Lord has called us. That we would be faithful to Christ. Faithful to what, in what He has entrusted to us. That we would win a victory of eternal weight. We must. The Apostle elaborates further upon this in the third section, which in connection with the rest of the passage amounts to a command to discipline your body lest you should be disqualified. That's our third point. Discipline your body lest you should be disqualified. Look closely at verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. Think about it. It would be absurd for an Olympian to do so. For the race to start and the runner to then wander all over the track. It would be absurd. Paul continues. I do not box as one beating the air. As I said before, boxing was one of the events in the Olympic and the Isthmian Games. Paul saying it would be absurd for an Olympic boxer to be in the ring with his opponent, but to shadow box instead of landing blows. Do you know what shadow boxing is? It's like when you're practicing and you're throwing punches, but you're not hitting anything. It's just you're jabbing the air. It would be absurd, Paul says, for an Olympic boxer to be in the ring with his opponent, but to shadow box instead of landing blows. The Apostle Paul says he does not do such things. Rather, he runs straight toward the goal. He lands each blow. As he stated back in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Or you could translate it, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. He was single-minded. He was singular in his focus. He knew what the goal was. And he ran straight for the goal. He landed each punch. He had the focus of an Olympian. Now look at verse 26. Again, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Look at that first clause. I discipline my body. Literally, I give a black eye to my body. That's what the Greek word literally means. I give a black eye to my body. That's why the NIV translates it, I strike a blow to my body. Here Paul continues to use the language of boxing that he just brought up. What he means here, I give my, a black eye to my body, what he means is I knock out my body's desires for anything that would keep me from obtaining the prize. Now, Paul is not talking about punishing his body as if his body were sinful. The English Catholic Bible, translated just before the King James Version, called the Dewey Reims Bible, wrongly translated this, I chastise my body. Now, to chastise is to punish. I chastise my body. The body does not need to be beaten or punished into submission. Paul is using figurative language here to speak of denying some of his body's desires. Desires that are not sinful but interfere with the ministry to which the Lord has appointed him. Back in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, 
Paul spoke about this in his own personal ministry. He said there in 1 Corinthians 4.11, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. He's talking about him and his fellow missionaries. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. There may be some hyperbole here, but we understand what he's saying. He forwent certain personal rights, personal privileges. He denied bodily desires. He endured suffering bodily for the sake of the gospel. Paul says here in our text in verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Now if you have the ESV, you'll notice that there's a footnote after this phrase, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. If you have that footnote, look at what the translators say um, in that footnote. They say, Greek, I pummel my body and make it a slave. So they're giving you a literal translation here in the footnote. I pummel my body and make it a slave. Or as they translate it, I keep it under control. Some Christians instead live as slaves to their bodies. This is the way we once lived. We once lived as slaves to our bodies. But we are to live this way no longer. As servants of Christ, we are to put our bodies into subjection. When we are converted to Christ, we are submitting ourselves, soul and body, to the Lordship of Christ. But here, in thinking of, of ministry... As servants of Christ, we are to put our bodies into subjection, into slavery to the ministry to which Christ has appointed us. To serve Christ, you have to say no to your body, just as an athlete, just as an athlete does in order to obtain the prize. Now, Paul here in this verse is still explaining the command back in verse 24, so run that you may obtain it. He's helping us to understand that. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Like Paul, you too must discipline your body and keep it under control in order to obtain the prize. To win the prize, we are going to have to say no to our body's desire to sleep in every day. We're going to have to say no to our body's desire to eat everything that it wants to eat. We have to say no to our body's desire to, to eat whenever it wants to eat. We have to say no to our body's desire to get Starbucks every time we have a craving. We have to say no to our body's desire for ease and comfort. We have to say no to our body's desire to have plush accommodations wherever we go. We have to say no to our body's desire to retire early unto a life of ease. You cannot cater to your body and serve Christ. Now what will happen if you and I do not discipline our body and keep it under control? Look again at verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. 
lest Paul not finish the course assigned him by Christ, and he become disqualified from receiving the prize. This is similar to what we read in chapter 3, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is not disqualified from salvation, disqualified from eternal life. This is disqualified from reward. So we have a warning. So that we would not fail to finish well in our service to Christ. You must discipline your body and keep it under control to the very end. Paul, Paul says, lest after preaching to others, he has been preaching to others, lest after preaching to, to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's concerned about finishing well. He started well. He's concerned about finishing well. Oh, how many runners there have been who were headed toward victory in a race, only to lose self-control at the end and look back to see if they could slow down, only to be, to be passed and lose the race. And it is the same in serving Christ. How many servants of Christ have lost self-control at the end and were disqualified from the reward, disqualified from the prize, didn't finish well? May that not be you, beloved brothers and sisters. May it not be said of you that you cared more about your rights and freedoms than running the race to which Christ has called you. What a passage we have studied. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of who you are in Christ. When you go back to chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses this letter, quote, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. At the very start, he reminds us of something very important that we have to keep in mind in every passage that we study in this epistle. That as a Christian, you are someone who is sanctified in Christ. When you were saved by grace through faith, when you were saved, God sanctified you. Meaning that He set you apart unto Himself for His service. You are someone who has been set apart. You've been set apart from the world unto Christ for His service. And then we see here the term saints, called to be saints. Every Christian has been called to be a saint. That's not something that you strive for. That is your position in Christ from the moment that by grace you are placed in Christ. Every Christian is a saint. The word saint means a holy one. Someone who is set apart. It's very similar to that word sanctify. You are a saint. You've been set apart by God's grace unto Christ. 
to now live a new life for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most wonderful position you could have to be a saint, to be set apart from the world. Why do you want to continue on with the world when the world is on its way to destruction? Why do you want to continue on with the world when the world is living in rebellion against God? As a Christian, you have been set apart from this world. You've been set apart unto Christ to serve Him. And it's all of grace. All of grace. You were purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the Bible by which we have been saved. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died upon the cross for our sins according to the the scriptures. So just as was prophesied in the Old Testament, the prophecy was fulfilled. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He, He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Just as was foretold, He rose. He rose in victory. Victory over the grave. Victory over sin. He rose as our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't need a dead Savior, you need a a risen Savior. But before He rose, He had to die to atone for your sins. And He said upon the cross, it is finished, that work of atonement completes. As He suffered the penalty for our sins, we have sinned against a holy God, we have transgressed His law in thought, word, and deed. And for that, we deserve God's eternal judgment because He's holy, holy, holy. Not just holy, but thrice holy. Infinitely holy. Perfectly holy. He's worthy of our utmost worship. He created you in His image as a worshiper to worship Him. He has created you to delight in Him, to enjoy Him, to live for Him, to live for His glory. And that's where true life is found. True life is not found in the things that this world offers. True life is not found in the the things that your unbelieving uh, friends are pursuing. No, life is found in Christ. Life is found in relationship with God Almighty. That's what He created us for. But sin separated us from God. Sin alienated us from God. The wages of sin is death. Eternal death, eternal judgment. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves righteous in God's sight. The law didn't give us a way to to do that. The law was given to us to show us our sin. To show us that we had transgressed God's standards. That we need a Savior. The law was given to point us to Christ. And so the gospel is what God has done to reconcile sinners to himself as Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, God come in human flesh, as, as, as he paid the penalty for our sin. It was sin that separated us from God, and Christ dealt with our sin at the cross. He reconciled us to himself at the cross. And now Christ has sent the gospel forth, that Paul called the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel is this promise from God. This promise that comes with the news of Christ's death upon the cross for our sins and His resurrection 
the gospel promises justification. It promises a right standing with God to the one who does not work but believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God has provided a way of salvation that is all of grace. Jesus Christ calls sinners unto Himself that they might find in Him eternal life. He says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Take up My yoke upon yourself. My yoke is easy, and My burden is light. You will find rest for your soul. He calls us to follow Him as Lord, as Master, and He promises rest for our soul. Rest for our soul. As, as, as the gospel promises forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future. The gospel promises this gift of righteousness, this right standing with God that was obtained for us by Christ. So that when we believe in Christ, it is the very righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us so that we stand before God clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Not in our deeds, Christ took them upon Himself upon the cross. He took our sins. He took our guilt. And when we believe in Christ, we receive His perfect righteousness. We receive this perfect right standing with God that's all of grace. That's a free gift. God places His Holy Spirit in the one who believes upon the Son. And the Holy Spirit begins a work of transformation. We were not righteous. The Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. But in salvation, God gives His Spirit. His Spirit has caused us to be born again, and His Spirit comes and takes up residence within us, and His Spirit begins to transform us and to empower us and to equip us, to make us more like Jesus, and to equip us to now serve Jesus as our Lord and Savior, to become more like Jesus, to be conformed to His image progressively, over time and the gospel promises that when the believer dies they will enter in, their soul will enter into the presence of the Lord Paul says to be absent from the body for the believer is to be present with the Lord because you've been saved you don't need to fear death but when the believer dies their soul goes into the presence of the Lord to be with him in glory and the gospel promises that when Jesus Christ comes again, the believer's body will be raised and reunited with your soul and spirit. And you will be conformed to Christ, not only in spirit and soul, but also conformed to Christ in bodies. You'll be given a resurrected body. What's that? It's a body that's perfectly suited for living in the presence of God forever and ever, worshiping Him, serving Him, enjoying Him, delighting in Him. This is the gospel of grace. And when you understand the gospel, and you believe the gospel, and you've been saved by the gospel, then you see it as a privilege to serve Christ. You see it as a, a privilege to be a servant or a slave of Christ. And you say to Lord Jesus, Here I am, send me. Use me however you please. 
You, you, you might give me a, a gift to be used in service of you that will not be noticed by anyone. Or you may give me a, a more public gift that people are going to see exercise. It doesn't matter to me if you, what, what kind of a gift you give me. Just here I am, use me. Use me in any way you see fit. Use me for the building up of your church. Use me in some way for the spread of the gospel to others and to other nations. Here I am, use me. And the Lord gives a ministry to all of his followers. And that ministry is a privilege, no matter what that ministry looks like. No matter how public or, or how invisible it is. Every ministry is important. Every ministry matters. Because it comes from our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has assigned it to us because it is important in His plan and purpose. And so it's for us to be faithful. And to be faithful in serving Christ, we've seen, we're going to have to exercise self-control. We're going to have to exercise self-denial. We're going to have to sacrifice some, some rights. We're going to have to sacrifice some privileges. But get in your mind that image of the Olympian athlete who exercises that self-control in those 10 months of training, who abstains from all those things that would, would hinder him from getting that prize. And Paul gives us this metaphor to spur us on, to urge us on in living faithfully for Christ, joyfully making whatever sacrifices Whatever self-denial, whatever endurance is needed for the sake of Christ. This is not salvation by works. This is, I'm running this race because I have been saved by grace. Grace teaches us to live a self-controlled life. Grace teaches us to renounce certain things. Grace teaches us to live boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not salvation by works. This is not trying to get a right standing with God by what you do. This is a response to the grace of God in Christ. This is a privilege. And we're to give it everything we have as the Spirit empowers us for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what an image you have given to us of the Olympic athlete. How much more, when they do this for that perishable wreath, how much more we should exercise self-control in all things as we strive in this power of the Spirit to obtain the prize to be faithful to the end. Oh Lord, may we not be people who lose self-control and look back. But by your grace, may we continue to press on toward that goal. Oh Lord, some here may be having no idea how to even start the race, how to even start serving Christ. How do I serve Him? I pray for such individuals, Lord, that, that you would that you would show them a ministry that you have for them, 
That you would show them, Lord, how they might be able to use what you have entrusted to them in the service of Christ. How they might in some way edify the body of Christ. How they might in some way bring the gospel to others. How they in some way might support the spread of the gospel to other nations. Lord, teach us how to serve Christ. Lord, we know that to learn this, we have to study your word. So we pray, Father, that, that you would give us your grace to be in your word each day. To be renewing our minds. It is your word that equips us for service. It is your word that equips us for ministry. So Lord, may we not be reading your word just to read it. But may we read it in order to be equipped for ministry. To be equipped for service. Here we are, your redeemed ones. Use us, Father, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.